This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. The Blood Red podcast, courtesy of the Liverpool Echo. I'm Guy Clark. Welcome along. Genie contract conclusion nears with all indications he's Barca bound. Former Liverpool midfielder making waves on the managerial merry-go-round. No, it's not Steven Gerrard. And another example of Harry Kane bias strikes. Alongside me to get into all of that, we have Sean Bradbury, Matt Addison and making his Blood Red debut, Mark Wakefield. Mark, because you're a debutant, I'll ask you, how are you keeping? Yeah, I'm good, mate. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a weird few days with the international break and no football, but yeah, sounds good regular listeners and viewers to our content here on Blood Red, of course, will recognise Mark from the Liverpool.com podcast. But, Sean, I'll come to you with the first topic we're going to get into today. Jeannie Vinealdum reported on Sunday that he's perhaps signed a pre-contract agreement with Barcelona. It doesn't seem to have been officially confirmed, but we've been thinking this might be on the cards for some time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think, when was it, back in October, Koeman did admit that they were interested in him over the summer. Last year, and yeah, I think it's one of those worst kept secret type things, isn't it? And yeah, I'll just just to kind of kick off with with Wine Alden. I think, especially recently and especially this season, just everything about this whole situation, you just have to give him so much credit. I think ultimately, at some point further down the line, you know, when all of this is done and kind of you know Klopp or Wine Alden, whoever's writing their their final autobiography, like I think this will just make for a fascinating case study and kind of diplomacy, loyalty, management, negotiation. You know, very, very interesting what must have gone on behind the scenes. But yeah, I think one album, you know, he, he's, he's never down tools. He's never really spoken publicly about the situation much, has he? Certainly not to sling any mud. Um, and, and recently, I think there was one press conference, I think it was the Champions League, one where one journalist just put a, a volley of questions about it to him and just kind of tried to put him on his toes a little bit and make him reveal something about the situation in his future. And even then, he said, you know, he'd, he'd be devastated that, if it pans out that he that he leaves Liverpool, he isn't playing for this club anymore. You know, it's it's a club that he's loved and he's given so much for. I think you have to give Klopp credit in all this as well. Um, and this kind of ties into why I think this is such a a thorny situation. You know, Klopp, whatever way you look at it, I think he's managed this superbly because it must have been difficult at times in the dressing room and on the training pitches at Melwood or Kirby that other players are arriving or or extending their deals. And you've got this guy who's been there pretty much since day one of the Klopp project, or certainly since it started really building momentum. You know, he was 2016 signing, wasn't he? So he's going to have been here for five years, every day of his five-year contract, and, and he's given everything. But I think the way that Klopp's managed things, and there's not been one point where you think any discontent has spilled out onto the pitch or in any public arena, really. I think everyone's just got on with this and gone about it in a very professional manner. Um, but yeah, just in general, I've kind of long suspected that he fancies something a little bit different. I think it must be so weird for him when he's playing this kind of conservative role for Liverpool, absolutely vital role, you know, in, in, in the midfield. But then all his seasons of success and glory that he's had are punctured by these stints when he goes away with the Dutch national team and plays in a more expansive setup, um, you know, plays further forward himself rather than mopping up and breaking up attacks. He's on the end of them or, or he's getting assists, he's getting lots of goals. I was looking earlier, I think he's level with Memphis Depay is, the top scorer currently in the Dutch national team squad, which you know is amazing, really, and speaks to how different his international performances and role has been for Liverpool. So I wonder, does he fancy a little bit more of that? Is there a situation or a team, and perhaps it is Barcelona, you know, everything points to that, where he can go and play a slightly different role. And you always think on these international trips, is, is there anyone who's in his ear 
um, saying, you know, come and come and play in Spain. You'll you'll really enjoy the sunny weather and playing for Barcelona. I know there's not not too many Dutch players playing out in Spain at the moment. I don't think, but obviously there's the young who's there. There's the whole Koeman connection. You know, it, it just kind of makes sense. But then, yeah, you know, you, you look finally at Liverpool's situation and they'll absolutely massively miss him. His, his availability, his adaptability. But I think you can look at it in, in one of two ways. You could certainly say. While Alvin's been a bit hard done by, he's not been rewarded perhaps in the way that some other stars have. And, you know, give it a year, give it 18 months, and Liverpool could have really miss him. This player who could just release the pressure and be such a dependable, reliable, composed presence in the centre of the park. But then at the same time, you think, have they played an absolute blinder? You know, I think he's 31 in November, so not far into next season. He's uh, he's catching up with me in terms of age. Like, so, you know, it's probably not ideal to be a first-team Liverpool player. And, you just think, in a way, they've maximised an asset, haven't they? For five years, they've got a player who's been superb, got his head down, focused, won things. And in a way, they've never had to pay him an extra penny as to, as to what he signed back in 2016, which was in a totally different Liverpool landscape, wasn't it? It was a Liverpool team who were Premier League champions, who hadn't won the Champions League. Um, and had absolutely no idea what he's getting paid and, and you know how, how much he was on a week when he signed that initial deal. But Liverpool have probably got got a very good deal really especially when you look at it over the last few seasons relative to what most of his teammates would have been earning so yeah I kind of can see how it's arrived here and in many ways it's not ideal Klopp's losing someone who has been central to the project and totally you know almost ever present and, and as I say reliable but maybe for, for Wijnaldum you know he gets a decent payday and, and a decent chance to go and play a type of football and, and have a role that gives him a bit more freedom and maybe a little bit more satisfaction on a personal level. So, sad for Liverpool, but I think absolutely fair for Wijnaldum. Yeah, is it one of those, Matt, where it's kind of... I suppose he was he was one of the early transfer wins for Jurgen Klopp, wasn't he? £25 million from Newcastle United. He signed that five-year deal at the time and pound for pound, he's got to have been one of the best signings that FSG have made. But maybe now, five years down the line, actually, there's no room for sentiment moving forward. And certainly for Liverpool, if they need to rebuild things, they can't go and give him a great big bumper contract. As Sean says, he's 31. But we do know sort of at the beginning of the, the COVID pandemic, our Liverpool correspondent, Paul Gorse, was sort of saying it was probably one of the, the priorities for Liverpool to get talking to him. But given how things have now played out, actually, a parting of the ways is probably best for, for all concerned. Yeah, I mean, he's going to be a, a huge miss, I think, for Liverpool, isn't he? We've seen him, as you say, grow and, and become a part of that project. But my instinct is that this is a decision that's been forced more from the Liverpool end than the Wijnaldum end. All the sort of quotes Sean referenced, the, the Champions League press conference, it, it sort of seemed like Wijnaldum was saying, well, it's not up to me, it's, it's kind of up to the club. And I think this, we've said it a few times over the last few months, is almost a a strategy decision for Liverpool to, to lose a player who, let's face it, has played pretty much every game this season. It might seem a little bit strange to, to lose someone when you think of, of the injury records of certainly one or two other players, particularly in the, the same sort of area of the pitch as well. To, to lose that is kind of a, a little bit of a gamble, I think. But at the same time, Liverpool have, have got to look forward. They've got to refresh the squad. And if you're giving a long-term deal to a player who does turn 31 later this year, it, it sort of sets the precedent for, for one or two other players as well. Liverpool have got lots and lots of contract decisions to make this summer. I think there's sort of something like eight or nine players who are going into the last two years of, of their contract. Some big names in there. Jordan Henderson is a similar age to Wijnaldum. You'd imagine that he'll get 
a new deal as the captain. It's a case of just not really being able to, to give contracts to every single one of those players. I think you have to to almost pick and choose in terms of, of which one. And unfortunately for Wijnaldum, it's, it's not going to be him. But you know, from his personal perspective, if he has played for Liverpool for five years, then goes to Barcelona, potentially you know, playing with Messi and, and maybe winning league titles and stuff over the next couple of seasons there, it, it's not going to be too bad a move, I don't think, for him. So for me, I think the, the player that Liverpool ultimately will replace Juan Alden with is Thiago Alcantara. I think that's why they probably brought him in last summer with a view to, to maybe Juan Alden leaving. And I think this is just almost the, the next step in, in the evolution of Liverpool. And it will be sad to see a player go who's played such a huge part over the last five years since he's come in. But, you know, it's as you say, it's it's almost the case of Liverpool have to do what's right for, for the business. That's what we've seen Liverpool and, and Michael Edwards and, and FSG do. It can't be a sentimental thing. And, you know, I caveat that almost with the fact that he has been such a huge player and he's got such a perfect injury record. Obviously, it does seem like a little bit of a gamble, but I think it it might be the right time to move on. It might be the right time for Liverpool to to part ways with him. Ultimately, we, we don't know, but I think you have to, to trust the record of, of what the club have done in the transfer market up to now. Matt's killed our speculation sector, lads. We were going to have about who, who could come in. Cheers, Matt. That's... <laughs> no, I'm only joking. We'll, we'll still get on to potential replacements, even if they are going to be external or internal. But Mark, looking at sort of the, the statistics this season, only Andrew Robertson has played more Premier League minutes than Gene Vinealdum so far this season for Liverpool. He's part of that leadership group. All the others seem to have been wiped out through injury this season. I suppose it only goes to show the professionalism with which he's continued to carry out his duties and that side of it, how much Liverpool will miss him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think Henderson said it earlier in the season or certainly the summer, um, like he, the players voted for the leadership group as it's become to be known. He was one of them. So that just shows that how well thought of he is with the group, you know, with a group of players. When considering you've got lots of Mo Salah and Firmino in there who are leaders in their own right, certainly up front. But, you know, what an Adam is quite a quiet leader. You know, the other three, Milner, uh, Henderson and Van Dyke, you know, they're quite vocal on the pitch. But Wadham's not, Wadham's not like that. He has the respect that he the commanding the respect of the dressing room and certainly of the manager. You, know, you can see Klopp absolutely adores him. You know, it was one of the first signs, I think, was it, was it Mane or maybe him? One of the first couple of signs he made in his first summer, you know, he made that midfield option a priority considering, you know, when he arrived, you know, there was a few raised eyebrows and you know, it was an attacking midfielder at Newcastle, probably playing on the wing, maybe even up front a few times. Like when I think, remember, he scored five goals, I think it was against Norwich City, I remember, in his first season there. And there were quite a few eyebrows why we're signing this lad, but. That's probably quite similar to what he's doing um, with the national team, the Dutch national team. But yeah, like a similar echo what Matt and Sean are saying. You know, he's an absolutely commanding professional, and you know, absolute shame to see him go. But I mean, from a Liverpool perspective, you know, the mistake they've made, if there is one, you know, they should have got this wrapped up way before the summer just gone. You know, they should have got it done sooner. But like Matt said, they might be prioritising some of the other contracts, you know, you've got Van Dyke and Henderson, Salah, Mane. You know, they've got a lot of contracts. Allison, you know, there's some loads of players down the line that their contracts are going to have to be sorted out at some stage and like you say you know they've got a world-class player for the last five years um are they basically saying you know running down to the ground and saying get the max value out of it you know like you say it's a bit weird that you're getting a player who has played pretty much every minute or close to every minute of the most important games of the season and he might be going away on the free you know that might be just a case of you know we're running him down, we're going to get absolute max value out of him. You know, if he goes on free, he goes on free. If we keep him, we keep him. You know, I think everyone 
it's not a secret they absolutely love to keep him, but you know, when they look at the long term, you know, that's what Liverpool and FSG are doing. They always look to the long term and sadly it might not be a situation that one on them isn't that, but it's not a show of how bad a player he is, certainly not a bad professional. You can see how much he loves the club and you know, if he does go in the summer, which it looks like that he will do, you know, he'll go with everyone's best wishes. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Let's pick up on that point then of importance of Jeannie Vijnaldum and talk about some of the, the big moments, Sean. I'm, I'm sure when people look back in 15, 20 years' time and talk about this great Liverpool side, I think the, the role of Jeannie Vijnaldum is probably going to be one of those things that grows and grows the importance of it, given the moments that he's given Liverpool. He, he got the ball rolling against Middlesbrough on the final day of the 16-17 season, as it were, to get back into the Champions League. Of course, he scored in the semi-final away at Roma. He scored the brace against Barcelona in the 4-0. This is a guy who when needed, there's been criticism that Liverpool haven't got enough goals from midfield, but when needed, he's always been there to carry the torch, hasn't he? Oh, absolutely. Huge, huge, big game player. And yeah, I mean, I think the ones you've referenced are the ones really. That goal that goal against Bora, it's just before half-time, wasn't it, in that 3-0 win? I, I just think, I mean, in a way, that one goal, especially at the time it came, and what could have been and was really quite a nervy affair in terms of having to secure Champions League qualification. You know, that, you can argue that led to Kiev and that, Helping inspire Madrid and the title, you know, very, very big goal. I think Barcelona, I mean, I, I was in the office for that one and probably one of my great Liverpool regrets that I wasn't there to see it. But like that, even just every time you watch the highlights, which is which is a lot, I imagine, for, for most Liverpool fans still, that celebration, for, I think, for the third goal on the night and his second goal. I always think when you're at a game, the best possible type of celebration, I mean, this is a whole argument in itself. Is it is it a last-minute winner? Is it a goal against Everton United? Whatever, but... I think when there's just been a goal and then straight away while there's still that buzz and hubbub of celebration around the first goal, when there's another one straight away, and especially when it's as as good a goal in an, as electric a tie in as crucial a situation as that, you know, he, he made the 3-0, he levelled the tie on the night. If people were hoping, you know, that's the moment they really started believing. It was just just incredible. And like, you know, the, the whole circumstances of him being brought on at half-time and kind of unleashed and, you know, this man who's, very smiley and, and, and like Mark was saying, is, is a very kind of calm and composed presence and is a leader, but is a quiet leader and leads by example. You know, I think that's probably one of the most angry we've ever seen him and he really channeled that into just brilliant play and, and a couple of great goals. And just personally, I'd say as well, like th- this season, I was one of the very lucky ones to be at the Wolves game back in December when a couple of thousand fans were, were allowed into Anfield. And I think to take my kind of professional uh, head off for a minute and, and just and just talk like a fan. I haven't really celebrated that many goals this season because, you know, the way football is and the way you're watching on telly and your first instinct is to wonder if VAR is going to find something or a flag's going to go up, you know. You just kind of greet them with a bit of a partridge-style shrug nowadays, don't you? And just, just wait to see what the outcome is. But that goal, the second goal on the night, he scored against Wolves. Wherever, at the top end from outside the area, yeah, I just was absolutely made up to, to see that and to be there for that and and that shows the other side of him, really, as as Barca does, as you said, Guy Roma did and, and Borra did. You know, he, he is a player who's got all this in his locker and has kind of been sacrificing a lot to be a team player for Liverpool, you know, an absolutely essential hog in Liverpool's team. And I think like Matt said as well, replacement-wise, I think they are perhaps looking to try and move beyond that a little bit um, and Thiago, someone who can come in and do that. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be a loss, but he leaves us with so many great memories and, you know, a lot to treasure and be thankful for. 
Yeah, very, very unheralded player as well, Matt. And I'm not sure the club shop probably sell out of Vinaldum five shirts each season. But does he has he sort of been key in unlocking obviously the, the forward members within the team in how that midfield's set up to be functional. But even someone like Jordan Henderson, the partnership they've now had in the midfield over a few years, there were question marks over Henderson for years and years from Liverpool supporters. Yet paired with Vinaldum, the two of those have just been the engine for this great attacking machine. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? It's about bringing the best out of, of other players. That's always what his role has been, certainly within this Liverpool team. Obviously, we can sort of have a, a separate conversation about him at international level and, and the player he was before he came to Liverpool. But he often does for Liverpool the, the quiet job that maybe if you're not watching Liverpool week in, week out, you probably don't understand the intricacies of, of what he does, winning the ball back, even just when he's on the ball, he's got that ability to just keep hold of it if he's got four or five players around him. I think that's the, the sort of typical image when I think of, of Wijnaldum in a Liverpool shirt. Obviously, there's the big moments and the big goals, but it's just he's just got that ability to, to keep hold of the ball even when there's four or five players around him. He'll just let them bounce off him and, and keep hold of the ball. And I think if, if you're Liverpool and, and you're trying to work your way up the pitch, you're trying to keep hold of the ball, that's something we've maybe not seen quite as much this season. He's had to, to sort of do that almost on his own. He's had to do that in a, a number six position rather than a number eight position. That's sort of been the knock-on effect of, of not having a, a Fabinho or a Henderson alongside him at times. There's been other bits of, of disruption. I think it sort of works both ways in that when Alden gets the best out of them, they get the best out of, of him. And that sort of speaks volumes for, for the relationship in that midfield of, of what he has brought to the table for Liverpool. So I think for, for Liverpool fans, you know, you, you say maybe... You know his name on the back of the shirt doesn't sell out and, and things like that. I think maybe in in other eras it, it probably would have done. I think he's been a little bit unfortunate almost in the sense that there's been so many other superstars of, of the last few years for Liverpool. But I think Liverpool fans do recognise now what he does. I think even if it's it's been fairly quiet almost, you know, over the last few years, that little role that he does, winning the ball back, retaining it, as I say, I think I think Liverpool fans absolutely accept and understand, you know, how important he's been to this system, but. You know, they, they have to move beyond that. I think Thiago can do something similar for Liverpool. I think you've got to hope next season that you can see maybe Henderson, Fabinho and Thiago together a little bit more. I think if everyone had been fit this season, that is what we would have seen on a, a more regular basis. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things that you almost can't quantify in terms of the numbers and, and the data, what he brings to this Liverpool team. But I think at the same time, everyone kind of knows just how important he is. So, He's going to be difficult to replace. Of course, he is. But I think Liverpool fans definitely understand the the, the role that he has played. And obviously, for, for him to get a move potentially to Barcelona, another of the, the biggest teams around Europe, suggests that maybe a few other people have taken notice of that as well. Final one just on his importance, Mark. And is it one of those where maybe sometimes you don't realise what you have until it's gone? I mean, 2019, he was on the 30-man shortlist for the Ballon d'Or nominations. He is a world-class and elite operating midfield player. Everyone was so excited when Thiago arrived and maybe forgot really actually what a world-class player and dependable player Vijnaldum is. Yeah, maybe. I mean, hopefully from a Liverpool perspective, you hope that's not the case. You know, we've seen clubs in the past, I mean, from a Premier League perspective, you look at Arsenal with Aaron Ramsey, you know, they let him go and arguably ruined to regret it. But, you know, it just, I'll, I'll take Matt's point, you know, maybe Thiago might be the replacement, maybe, you know, if that's the case, I think you might see a changing of style because they are two very, very different players. You know, Wyoms a bit more, you know, can run at defences, whereas Thiago's a bit more of a silkier player in possession. You can 
play passes in behind, you know. So it's gonna be very interesting to see how Liverpool, you know, move forward with that. I think they are gonna to have to change in some way, you know. We're talking about possibly getting a new player in or getting Thiago in. You know, there's another player there who I think might could potentially fill the shoes of one of them, like Curtis Jones. You know, he's come on in leaps and bounds over the last 12 months or so. And, you know, they are very different players. You know, Curtis Jones is probably a bit you know, like similar to our Silky in possession, a bit, but a bit more flair about him. But, you know, there's a lot more to him than that. He's worked very hard defensively on his game, certainly in the last few few months. Um, I was going to say, I'm not big enough, trying to big up too much, but, you know, there's certainly some potential in there. But, whether Liverpool dip into the transfer market to try and get a replacement in, which, you know, there aren't many world-class midfielders around at the minute. It's certainly not a, a cheap price, uh, a cheap price, especially in the, the market that we have, every club finds themselves in at the moment. So, you know, if Liverpool are going to lose one Arden, you'd like to think that they are preparing for it. You know, it's not a secret that he's likely to be going. It's been well-known for a number of months now. So you'd like to think that if they are resigned to him going, that they have a plan in place, whether that's, you know, Promoting Jones up the, into the team, changing the style of play, or you know, moving to to get a new signing. You know, hopefully they don't really regret it. But like I say, it all depends on whether they've got a plan in place to make sure that doesn't happen. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Let's get on to talking about replacements. Then, before we get on to what else we have on our agenda on today's edition of the Blood Red Podcast. And Sean, when Liverpool have been at their best, the midfield three is normally comprised of Fabinho being in the number six role and then Wijnaldum in that left-hand pocket that we've always sort of associated with maybe the more creative of the roles. But recently when Wijnaldum was playing that deep-lying midfield position, there was a lot of criticism about the lack of press and bite in the Liverpool midfield. And I just worry if Thiago is the long-term replacement. We've seen his tackling, it's not been great. And the energy may be not quite as high as what Wijnaldum does offer. So is it Jones or do you think Liverpool do need to look externally for, for a replacement? Well, yeah, I think I think like the guys have said, I think, like Matt said, certainly if everything had gone to plan this season and, you know, um, kind of COVID and things like that hadn't hadn't happened and, and the season had you know settled into some kind of normal pattern, Fabinho, Thiago and Henderson would have been the one that I think we can all say we would have seen a lot more of and it would have been really interesting to see the mechanics of that and, and how it worked and how it settled. Uh, it, it's, it's difficult to judge, isn't it? Because, you know, w- when the rest of the team is in flux and the position of Liverpool's line, the form of the full-backs, the constitution of the entire defence is is different, you know, week to week and game to game. I do think it's really hard to judge the midfield and you're right about Thiago. I think, you know, there's certainly areas where you can criticise him and rash challenges and certainly at the start of games, kind of trying to keep up with the pace of a game rather than trying to settle to it and, and adjust to it, I think is something he does need to work on a little bit. But then, you know, how many games he played with the, the reassuring presence of Fabinho behind him? You know, I often say, while, rather than risking the yellow and putting pressure on the team at the start of a match, which we've seen him do a handful of times, why can't he just let a player go? Well, I think it's much easier to do that and, rely on the banks of the team behind you when Fabinho's sat over your shoulder. You know, it's it's just, I think, looking at Thiago, you can't realistically judge him as a Liverpool midfielder until next season or until we see a genuine run of games where he's alongside guys who you would expect him to be alongside, you know, fairly often. I think as well, um, like Mark said, you know, Jones is, is, is one where Klopp has seriously got to start thinking about the pathway now. You know, he's, he's, he's been excellent this season, virtually... Every single time he's been called upon, and like the lads have touched on, I just think the level of quality he's shown and the, the kind of speed and, and extent of his 
adapting to playing in the first choice midfield three has, has kind of blown me away, really. And, and I think on that, Sean, his, his willingness to almost have Wijnaldum-like qualities of sacrificing his attacking instincts because Wijnaldum came in as an attacking midfielder and became a functional player. And Jones this year, if you didn't know, having seen him through the academy, he'd been an attacking wide player in number 10. Oh, absolutely. To kind of almost quell those instincts. And yeah. I know you can say any footballer should listen to instructions, but it's, it's not just as simple as that, is it? You know, when you're thrown into these big environments and these big stages and your muscle memory, like you say, it's a face forward and maybe take a shot on, you know, that's the kind of player he was to a much more of an extent in the youth teams, you know. But then I think you've got to look beyond Jones as well. And Naby Keita, we all hope that he gets a run this season. Now he's been doing different things in, in his injury recovery and they've tried to have this long-term approach where when we eventually do see him, hopefully it's in a more durable and lasting sense than, than has happened of late. You know, so you've got, you've got three players there who in some ways can offer elements of what one album can, but I guess there's, you know, certain questions around them about availability and whether they def- definitively fit into that Liverpool structure. But again, like the guys have said, I think that the whole Liverpool plan and approach when they signed Thiago and to an extent when they signed Jota, it was always going to evolve and change a little bit because of the specific circumstances of this season. We haven't necessarily seen that, but I think we will next season. Then, yeah, like you say, the question of will they have anyone else? You know, Milner's not getting any younger. Perhaps there's questions around Oxlade-Chamberlain and his suitability and long-term viability as a Liverpool midfielder at the moment. There's lots of names flying around, isn't there? Basuma, Sander Berge, and I think it's going to be such a difficult market, but if if teams get relegated, and, you know, there's a couple of names there, who, certainly in the case of Berge and Sheffield United, it could well happen. Be interested to see if Liverpool do sniff around there and, and if there's any chance to get a bit of a bargain and, and show up the midfield in the summer. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I suppose on Sean's point then, Matt, is it a case of maybe evolving rather than trying to directly replace Wijnaldum? Because we've all said for ages that Roberto Firmino might be the hardest player in the system to replace. I'd argue that Wijnaldum would probably be equally as difficult to replace for his durability and just a solid displays that he gives time after time. I think durability-wise, I'd agree with you. I think in terms of, of the style, I don't think he's as different uh, in that number eight position to someone like Thiago, as, as people might think, as long as he's got Fabinho behind him. I think Thiago can do that sort of role of, of winning the ball back. He never, ever gives the ball away. Okay, he's maybe retaining it in a slightly different way to Wijnaldum, where Wijnaldum might dribble a little bit more and, and keep hold of it a few seconds and then pass. Thiago's maybe you know, breaking the lines and, and playing those balls forward a little bit quicker and, and taking players out that way. I think they can do a, a similar sort of role as long as they've got the other players around them. So I think in, in that regard, it, it won't be too much of an issue. The, the issue for me is, you know, can... Liverpool get Fabinho on the pitch in that number six every single week. Can they keep Thiago and, and Henderson fit? Will Naby Keita be fit? These are all sort of questions and, and variables that we just simply don't know the answer to going into to next season. So it will be interesting, as you say, to, to see if they look elsewhere. Will they bring somebody in? I think you know there's been a, a few options. Obviously, uh, Sean mentioned there, Sander Berger at, uh, at Sheffield United. I wonder how much it would take to, to get him away. I think they paid around £22 million for him from, was it Genk or, or Ghent that he uh, arrived from? But you'd imagine that they'd have to, to pay a little bit more than that. He's Basuma as well. I mean, you're probably looking at 30 £35 million for him, for, for Brighton to let him go. Probably that's you know quite a, a lot of money when you, you consider that Liverpool are losing one album on a free. I, I just wonder you know, whether Liverpool will look at it and think, well, the midfield this season, okay, it's been a little bit stretched at times. Maybe they, they could have maybe done with one more at times, but are they going to have 
as many injuries, certainly at centre-back, you'd hope not going on into next season. So, you know, if if they were to lose Wijnaldum, well, if they could get the other players around him fit enough, that's probably a, a decent enough replacement, I think. So it's a bit of a balancing act. And as I say, we, we don't know what next season is going to look like. You have to assume it's going to be more of a normal season than this season in terms of injuries. But I suppose you'd always quite like to, to lean on that comfort blanket of, of just knowing that whatever was going to happen, even in a completely mad injury-ravaged season, Gino Wijnaldum has been absolutely ever-present, playing every week, not really losing energy. So, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult balance in that. So I think Liverpool will have a plan and, and they'll know it's going to be slightly easier next season in terms of balancing the squad than it has been this season. But I suppose there is always going to be that question in the back of your mind, particularly when you think of, of one or two of the other players, Naby Keita being the obvious one, that you just can't guarantee that he will be on the pitch every week. With Wijnaldum, you, you absolutely could do that and you probably could do that for the next two or three seasons as well. Well, I'd, I'd say, to be fair, on your point there on midfield players, that you look at all of them, actually. Oxlade-Chamberlain, Cater, Fabinho, even Henderson, Thiago as well in his past. They've not got great injury records. And Mark, Liverpool took a risk with letting Dejan Lovren go last summer and not bring in a centre-back because they thought they'd be able to shuffle the pack and have the numbers there. So we've spoken about Sanderberg there, Yves Basuma. There's a few on the continent. Renato Sanchez, he's another one that's kind of been tentatively linked with Liverpool. Do you feel they need one? And certainly maybe on someone like Basuma, already Premier League ready and able to sort of do that that pressing kind of game that Van Alden does? The short answer, I think, is yes. I mean, not just necessarily for this season. I think looking long term, like you're looking at some of the ages of the midfielders, you know, Henderson's 30-31, Milner's mid-30s, you know, Fabinho is going, what, 27-28, Oxlade-Chamberlain 27, you know, Midfielders aren't they're they're getting older faster than you'd think. So they've got to, you know, get a player in, I think personally, but they've also got to think of the future. You know, you mentioned Sanderberg there, you know, he fits the profile of what Liverpool have done in the past. You know, certainly getting a player who's recently been relegated, who's got Premier League experience, they did that with Robertson, Wijnaldum as well, of course. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they went for a player of that ilk, but you know, it's not just for next season that they've got to do with that, you know. I still think the players that they've got without Wijnaldum, what could do a job next year, especially with um, the quarter they've got there. But they've got to start looking you know, beyond that season, which, you know, they've done that with the players that they signed, you know, some of the young boys that they signed, you know, Harvey Elliott, you know, players like that. They've been signed for not just the next year or two, they've been signed for the years beyond even after Klopp post 2024. So they will have that in mind, um, whether it's going to be one of those names that we've been mentioning, you know, Sanchez, um, Berg, Neuhaus, I think as well, Gladbach, you know, Oara, Leon, you know, some of these are world-class players. They're not going to be very, very cheap, especially the latter there at War at Leon, who is a very good player. So, you know, whether they've got room in their budget to get a midfield, you know, we've talked that they might need to sign a centre-back, you know, what's going to be the situation there with Kavak, they're going to be spending possibly 18 million on him if they get him. If they don't, then they don't need to go and get one of those as well. Striker as well, you think they're going to need another forward. So it all depends on what budget Klopp's got to work with and where the priorities lie and compared to the other two, I don't see midfield being the biggest priority this summer, but they will have it in mind that over the next year or two, they've got to get somebody in, not just you know to replace one Island, but just to freshen the whole midfield up. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating summer. Do make sure that you stick across everything on the Liverpool Echo website and here on Blood Red, because it is going to be absolutely fascinating. The Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo. 
anyway, let's move on to one of our other topics. Matt, I'll come to you to lead us on this one. Javi Alonso, I know you did a podcast on him not too long ago, actually, looking at how he's getting on in coaching with Real Sociedad B. It's all, bit, all but been confirmed that looks as though he's going to be replacing Marco Rose at uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach next season. Yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating move. If you've not listened to, to that podcast, do go back. I've tweeted it out again today to try and get a few more people onto it because it's, you know, we, we spoke to a, a couple of people, uh, a couple of Spanish football experts who were, were really, really excited about the, the prospect, really, of, of him taking that next step. The question with Xabi Alonso was, was not whether or not he could become a good coach, but whether he'd want to, really, whether he'd want to, to take up that step of, of going into to senior first team football. And, it seems like he he has done that now. Obviously, Marco Rosa going to, to Borussia Dortmund is you know leaving behind a, a great deal of, of talent there, loads of good players, loads of, of prospects that you'd imagine that Xabi Alonso could help take on to, to the next level and, and do what he does essentially at the moment with Real Sociedad's B team. But with a, a first team, obviously, it's a, a lot more pressure. He's going to have to to move away and, and move his family presumably to Germany now rather than you know growing up in, in Sociedad. His wife is from that area as well. There, there was always that question of whether he'd want to, to uproot his family. But I think that the fact that he is prepared to do that this summer, you know, the fact that they're going to move countries, they're going to have a, a completely different change. I think his, his kids are still quite young and you know the, the plan really was to sort of retire from football in terms of, of playing and, and move to Spain. The fact that he is prepared to, to uproot all of that and move to Germany and, and start all over again in terms of a, a new job, a new life and, and all of that sort of thing. I think it it just shows that he is really, really serious about this. And I think it's it's going to be a really interesting move. I think it's inevitable now that he's going to be linked with bigger jobs. I think the fact that he's gone to Borussia Mönchengladbach is fascinating in terms of Liverpool and Red Bull links and all of that sort of thing. I know they're not obviously a Red Bull club, but Marco Rosa has worked within the Red Bull group. He's obviously now moving to, to Dortmund, which brings in the Klopp links. You think obviously Xabi Alonso has played for Bayern Munich before. If he potentially could be a future Bayern Munich manager, there's there's loads and loads of questions now. But I think that the first question has been answered in terms of does Xabi Alonso want to go and be you know, a senior football coach, senior manager? The answer seemingly is yes. So, you know, the, the next one is is what will, you know, this move, will it work out for him first and foremost? But what else does he have his eye on at, at some point further down the line? So, yeah, it's going to be absolutely fascinating to, to see what happens, how he gets on next season. You know, I think uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach have, have dropped off a cliff since Marco Rosa uh, decided to, to move to, to Borussia Dortmund and, and made that public. But uh, yeah, th there's still a lot of talent there for him to work with. And I'm sure, you know, he's got every tool that he needs to be a, a massive success. Yeah, this managerial game seems to be a, a midfielder's paradise, Sean. It's almost like a sort of late noughties football manager save got out of hand. You've got Steven Gerrard, Xabi Alonso, Mikel Arteta, Frank Lampard. They're all now, Andrea Perlo, all having a crack at management. But Mark referenced 2024 before, and obviously Jurgen Klopp will be coming to an end there. This is a huge jump, though, isn't it? From Sociedad B into a Champions League club. Steven Gerrard, for example, went to Rangers, but a uh, ravished Rangers that he's now had to rebuild. And I suppose over the next three years, all eyes will be on Xabi Alonso and whether or not romantically perhaps leading, whether or not he could be a contender to become a future Liverpool manager. Definitely. And you're right about the midfielders. I'm just waiting for uh, Momo Sissoko and Mascherano to have a go. And then you've got everyone in the in the best midfield of the world, Chance. But um, no, yeah, look, I, I always thought, if you look back to that era, um, 
like the, the Benitez era, if you like, I always thought the one person who just looked every inch cut out for management was Xabi Alonso. You know, he's clearly a very, very intelligent fella, speaks, you know, three, four languages probably. He's played in England, Spain, Germany, under top, top coaches and won a huge array of honours. And that's before you even mentioned his exploits on the international stage. And I think even his position, you know, part of me just thinks he was someone who saw the whole of the pitch. He was a brilliant, brilliant defensive midfielder, but also someone who was very involved going forward, great passing range and was was key to how teams attacked as well. So just thought he was always very, very well equipped to be a kind of cerebral presence and, and go into management. But then I think you're right, Guy, in terms of looking at the wider picture and in the shape of him and Gerard, you've got two people who are very interesting stages of their career. Obviously, Alonso is a couple of years behind Gerard, isn't he, in terms of he's now making his big move and his first break into senior management and it's a club of a good stature, you know, we've been, well, they've been in Europe this season, haven't they? They finished fourth, yeah. was it, in the, in the Bundesliga last season? So, you know, good side, great opportunity for him. But I, I think just it's just fantastic for Liverpool, potentially, as, as you say, when you when you do start looking, and it's still a long-range look, but you're looking beyond Klopp, you've got two young managers who seem hungry, who seem like they've kind of got everything, really, that you need to succeed as, as an elite manager. Um, I think Gerard said he exceeded, exceeded expectations, certainly mine so far, and washed away a bit of my scepticism about him. But Alonso, as I say, looks like he should just cut it and, and he should be able to to go forward here. But, you know, you've got two players who are, have a huge attachment to the club and City in terms of Liverpool, who, you know, if, if they can carry on progressing, then they could be genuine options for the Reds going further down the line. I think as well, you look at the pair of them and in terms of managerial potential and the practicalities of, of them as managers, I think there's more similarities than I probably would have anticipated. Like, you know, listening to quite a bit of Gerard recently when he's been doing interviews and podcasts about how it's gone for him at Rangers. And one thing I always wondered about him, when you're, when you're that good at football and, you know, you're that much of a football man, you know, does he, does he know his own limitations and would his ambitions almost kind of outstrip the reality of what he was able to do? But what's impressed me so much about him is the way he's, almost handpicked the team around him, Gerard, and he's very aware of how little time he's had as a coach. So he's got people like Michael Beale who are absolutely central to him and his operation and how he does it. And I'd say Alonso is quite similar, isn't he? He's a player who played on quite late into his 30s and was still playing at a high level. So, you know, why would he stop? So I think if, if Alonso can go down the same path a little bit, surround himself with the right people, do the right things for a few years, then... We could potentially have two people who, who love Liverpool who could be knocking on the door and looking to manage them one day, which is, yeah, a very, very exciting prospect. Yeah, it is, Mark, isn't it? And when you look at Xabi Alonso as well, the managers he worked under, of course, Rafael Benitez, Pep Guardiola, throwing even Jose Mourinho. He sort of had the full spectrum of setting teams up and discipline and all these kind of things that managers are looking to set out in their sides. And I suppose once it comes around to 2024, whilst Gerrard's always looked very much an appealing candidate in terms of emotion if he gets this right at Gladbach aside in the Bundesliga in the Champions League he might take some beating to sort of be superseded for succeeding Klopp couldn't he? Possibly yeah I mean you know the emotion will instantly draw people to Gerrard you know club legend uh, local boy you know he's obviously going to be drawn to that um, but you know for me from a personal level now that, that's always been you know worried me about getting someone like Gerrard you know the romantic side of it you know we've seen how it's gone with Frank Lampard at Chelsea, you know, it's so direct for it at the start, but then all of a sudden, you know, it doesn't doesn't go to plan, you know, does it tarnish the legacy? I think obviously nothing will ever tarnish Gerard or even Alongo's legacy as a player, but 
you know, that, that's always in the back of your mind when you think about making decisions based on emotion. You know, when the time comes that Klopp does go, whether that's you know in twenty twenty four, probably will obviously likely it will be. Um, you know, whoever the manager is, whether it's Alonso is in contention, though that's not for another three years. So you'll have hopefully have had three years at the top level. You know, gaining experience, being on the biggest stage, you know, work, working on different tactics. You, know, you mentioned there some of the managers he's worked under, you know, similar to Jar, you know, some world-class managers there. You know, he's got bundles of talent there to, to learn from, to you know, to develop his own ideas. And you could see when he was a player, you know, tactically he understood the game. Um, and yeah, just going forward, you know, just it's got to be based for me personally. Whoever replaces Klopp has got to be the best man for the job. Whether that's you know someone who played for Liverpool didn't you know the emotion the the, the heart will say he played for Liverpool. He's like understands the city. He understands the culture of the club. Let's go for him. But you know we've seen with managers in the past at all at different clubs that doesn't always happen. You know in terms of Arteta at Arsenal for example. You know at the start it was a bit shaky, but then he got the FA Cup win. You know what a bit more time. Then this season's been very very up and down but you can see there's something building there and if they give him time for example you know you think it would work out the way they wanted to and that's probably what's going to happen if Liverpool do go down the route of getting a former player which you know that's the way the trendy thing these days you know it's not just in England like you mentioned there you've got you know Pirlo at Juventus um even, even with Zidane at Real Madrid you know we talked about that you know Guardiola when he was at Barcelona you know it is a trendy thing over the last decade or so so it is going to be interesting to see over the next three, four years, whatever it is, obviously, in terms of looking at Liverpool, it's still a long, long way off before we get to talking about that. But it's certainly something to keep an eye on because, like you say, it, when I saw the Alonso room, I was a bit surprised because you know, it is a massive, massive step up for him. You know, he's at Real Madrid, uh, not Real Sociedad, the B team, you know, third tier of Spanish football, you know, going to a Champions League, Bundesliga side. You know, that's a very, very big jump. Uh, but if he's got all the makings of a cup, a quality coach, you know, he's not just going to get the job just based on his name. He's going to have the experience or got the um, right ideology that the club want to go forward. So, yeah, it's certainly interesting going uh, for the next few years, but it can't be based on emotion. Whoever Liverpool do decide to go on after Klopp and the next few years, hopefully the club will look at whatever uh, Alonso's doing, seeing if he's the right man for the job. Yeah, the uh, the culture at Liverpool, of course, has changed an awful lot since he was there anyway. He, he left even before FSG had arrived. So we'll have to wait and see how that one plays out. Final thing before we go, and uh, Sean, I'll come to you first on this. Is Harry Kane winning another penalty in the Premier League this week away at, at Aston Villa? It was described on commentary as cute. That was Mohamed Salah. That wouldn't have been the same, would it? Uh, no, no. Um, and I think the very, very simple answer as to why is Harry Kane is, is the England captain and probably better qualify what I mean by that, really, because I think there's, you know, this could easily stray into quite murky territory. And in terms of a lot of what people have picked up online and the way in which they've sought to understand the hypocrisy, because I think we can definitely say there's some hypocrisy at play, is to make, you know, some accusations and allegations that I don't necessarily think I'm, I'm well qualified or well versed enough to, to really assess. But I think what you can say for sure is that if you strip away all kind of comparative elements, and I understand you've, you've asked the comparative question, but I think if you start from the basis that, that this guy is England captain, um, as a result of that, I think it does make it easier to point the finger elsewhere at other people. I mean, you know, and, and, and I suppose implicit within that is a criticism of some elements of the media and broadcasters and pundits, because you think about Harry Kane, who he is and what he represents. He's, he's what, 27, 28 years of age. He's the national team captain. He's, captain of a London team too, which I think in a 
national media sense counts for something in this debate. You know, he scored 30 odd goals in 50, 51 appearances for England. He is the great hope of the national team, realistically, for the next few years. And I think the national press and broadcasters and just the whole kind of media landscape can be absolutely savage about England players and managers if they do underperform. You know, that's that's the other side of this. Like, you know, if if Harry Kane was was not scoring and the goals absolutely dried up, I think he'd get it as bad as anyone. You know, there's there's no doubt about that. But in fairness to him, he's he's been pretty good in the main. I think he hasn't scored that many for England recently, but last year he scored more goals for England than, than games he played for England. So you know, he, he performs for the national team. And I think, you know, without kind of damning people who work in the industry, we work in too much. It's it's often in the interest if you cover the England football team, it, for them to do well. You know, your readership, your viewership, your sales will all go up if England play well and, and succeed. And I think it's fair then to assume that a lot of people who, who follow and cover the national team in, in much more depth than we do are supportive of them and, and I think part of that then would, would lead to a blind eye perhaps being turned to some of Kane's antics and then you know not necessarily inadvertently but as a result other people's things being flagged up um, so I think that would be partly my explanation of it um, and, and then you know the, the, the result there is that hopefully refs refs aren't looking for it as much because this player isn't as directly associated with, with foul play you know he doesn't have the reputation um, I think just just on a slight tangent with Kane, I mean, the, the diving is is clearly a thing. He does it. So do others. You know, so does Mohamed Salah at times and, and lots and lots of other players in the league, which I think is why some people do have an issue with it. But for me, the thing with Kane that frustrates me the most and that I think is dangerous is this kind of signature movie he has where he kind of has a little look around, backs into players and, and doesn't compete for aerial challenges, which... I just think yeah, and let's not also get onto the, the the shoulder charge in the North London derby on Gabriel, where he well, re, reset his spine. But anyway, Matt, before we go, because I, I want to get everyone just to, to have a, a take on this before we do wrap things up, is it just one of those where actually it is cute from Harry Kane? He's won his side a penalty, but when Salah does it, it is cute as well. It doesn't need to be deceitful from either one of them. They've taken advantage of a defender giving them an opportunity in the penalty area. Yeah, that's that's the issue, isn't it? I think the the one with with Kane over the weekend. I think it, it is a penalty because there is contact and he does go down. And I've not got a massive issue with that being given as a penalty. But it's that it's that word, isn't it? It's consistency. It's consistency in terms of, of referees giving the decisions, but then it's also consistency in terms of the way that we speak about them. If Harry Kane is cute and clever, then that's absolutely fine. I think I, I would go along with that. I would agree with that. I think it was Gary Neville on commentary, wasn't it, on that particular game? If if Gary Neville wants to, to describe it as that, I'm, I'm absolutely in agreement with him. But I think you've got to then have that for, for other players as well. And I think sometimes we, I think part of it is tribalism, but I think sometimes we get a little bit confused as to what we want from footballers. Do we want footballers to be cute? Do we want them to be getting penalties? Or do we want them to, to be honest and, and stay up? Because, I mean, we've had this conversation the other way around about Sadio Mane in the last couple of weeks. He could have gone down, he could have been cute, but maybe chose not to be and tried to, to play on and maybe he gets criticised for that. Harry Kane gets criticised for, for diving potentially and you sort of have to you have to think of it in a, in a sense of almost the footballers can't win, can they? If they go down, if they stay up, there's going to be criticism one way or the other from someone, whether they want it to be a penalty, whether they don't want it to be a penalty. It's it's almost a case that they can't win in that sense. But I think from, from my point of view, it would be it would be quite nice to just have some consistency. And if we say one thing for one player, let's say the same thing for, for every other player as well. 
What's your take on it, Mark? I mean, just got to echo what the what the other guys are saying. I mean, I think this whole thing started really. I mean, obviously, Hurricane. You know, he any time he gets involved in this and that involves a penalty, his name is going to immediately get talked about. And the very nature of him getting criticised for diving and not getting, you know, getting treatment and say that Salah does you know is you know contradictory. You know that he is getting criticism for it. So that in itself is contradictory. But like, I just got to say what Matt said. All we want is consistency and every single player to be treated the same, praised the same, criticised the same. You know, we've seen Salah guilty of diving as well. We've seen players in pretty much every team across Europe doing it. It's a thing that's been happening over the last two two decades or so, bring more. You know, so it's nothing new. It's just like you say, it's just the way it is. And the fact that you know, I think if Gary Neville hadn't said called it cute on commentary, I think that stirs the pot a bit more. And then you see it on social media, it does the rounds, and that just invites tribalism like Matt said so no, I just don't think there's anything much more to say on it than that I mean like I say, all you just want is consistency and every player to be treated the same pretty much yeah no definitely well that wraps us up for this edition of the Blood Red Podcast we'll be back on Friday as we look to dig deep into the uh, well well of ideas during this international hiatus for Liverpool in the meantime we'll have the likes of analysing Anfield and Liverpool.com to come for you later on in the week but from myself Guy Clark Matt Addison Sean Bradbury and Mark Wakefield thanks for your time and your company it's bye for now You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.